The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Memorial Day weekend, it's a weekend when we celebrate our freedom. It's a weekend when we remember those who paid the ultimate price for that freedom. Here at TBC, we've had uh, three of our own who've lost their lives uh, since 911, and so it's a poignant reminder to us who have been in those situations, been with those who have uh, suffered that loss. And so in a moment, we will pray for our nation and thank God for all he's done for us. Uh, summer begins next week for us, no 815 service, but it also means that uh, some of our folks that uh, work with kiddos take the summer off. And so we need you to step up and uh, minister. Many of you have been ministered to a long time as you've been out there. This is an opportunity for you to give back and to minister to some of our little ones. So great opportunity as a couple, as a family, or as an individual. Uh, you can see many of our needs have been met, but there are still others that are uh, available for you to serve. It's a great opportunity to serve and honor kids and see lives change by the word of God. This past week, by God's grace, we uh, underwent our six out of seven infusions and uh, feeling quite normal, actually. It's really a miracle that they have been uh, minimal side effects over the past months. And so extremely grateful for your continued prayers as we battle that. That's about a $15,000 bottle of juice up there, the uh, chemo that I'm getting. So grateful for the drug company that pays for all that as well. I realize, though, I'm not the only one with uh, chronic disease or struggling right now, and I am the one who's the beneficiary of the prayers of so many. So two weeks ago, we prayed for mothers. On Mother's Day last week, we prayed for graduates uh, from high school. And this morning, here's what I'd like to do. If you are uh, like I am, you're in the midst of battling some chronic disease, it may be a heart disease, it may be some kind of cancer, maybe some neurological issue, whatever that is, I'm going to ask you to stand right where you are. Maybe diabetes, whatever it might be, just stand right where you are because we'd like to pray for you this morning. So I'm not the only one with that battle. Go ahead and stand right where you are. Not many of us this hour. I mean, we had a bunch the last two hours. There we go. This must be the healthiest hour then. Okay. There we go. Here's what we're going to do. I I want every hand, I want uh, every person standing to be touched. So there's somebody around you. Would you stand up, make your way over to them, and just lay your hand on their shoulder, on their back? Uh, Go ahead. I'm going to take a moment while you do that. I want to make sure every person standing is being touched by someone as we pray for them. Father, it is... uh, a great privilege to call you Father. It's a great privilege to know that you're the great physician. It's a great privilege to know that you are the one who is the healer of all things. And Father, for those of us standing, we recognize we're in a battle. For some of us, it's a battle for the very life that we have here. But Father, in the midst of that, we want to look like Jesus. We want to respond like Jesus would. So I pray for myself and these dear brothers and sisters that in the waiting rooms and in the infusion rooms and as we see doctors and go to appointments that we would resemble Christ, that we would look like Christ and we would respond like Christ would. I pray for these dear brothers and sisters and the trials that they're in, Father, that you would sustain them, you would support them, that you would replace chaos with peace because of the dependence upon you. And Father, I pray for healing. We recognize that healing may be on the other side of heaven, on this side of heaven, but we pray for every person standing, Father, that you would touch their body in some way. So Father, it's our desire, it's our desire to to go deeper with you as a result of the trial we're in. And we pray that would take place in each of our lives. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. Thank you. Get that picture out of there, and away we go. Okay, postcards from the past. This is our last study from these postcards. We did uh, 2 John, 3 John, 
Uh, we did Jude, and we did one other one. Philemon is what we did. Stephen did that, and uh, Dave Tate uh, did that. This week we're going to look at a message entitled Fight. And you're thinking, I didn't come to church to learn how to fight. Yes, you did. We're going to talk about when it's okay to fight in church. Last week, it's kind of the opposite of what Dave Tate talked about last week when uh, we looked at uh, what was taking place in Third John. But this week, we're going to tell you there is a time when it's right to fight. Time when it's right to fight. Jude, beginning in the first verse. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith. If you have a different version, it might say that you might fight for the faith. You might fight for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. I appeal to you to contend earnestly for the faith. Jude says there's a time to fight. There's a time to defend the faith, to fight for the faith, to protect the faith. It's a time to fight. time when we should fight. It's good to fight sometimes. You say, man, that sounds strange coming from a pastor. Well, it may sound strange, but there is. I mean, there are times to fight spiritually, times to fight physically. Uh, I, I ran, you know... I told you a couple of, uh, about a month ago, Bev and I went and kept our four grandkids in College Station, and they had just had four kittens, and then as soon as we left, they had four more kittens, different mama, obviously, uh, eight kittens in that family, and there had been multiple pictures of me posted in Facebook with me holding kittens over the last few weeks. I, you know, I, the, I love kit. I, I enjoy kittens, not love, I enjoy kittens, but the problem is kittens grow up to be cats. But I did find a cat that I would have in my house. It's a cat that fights. Watch this. We're back at 740 with the video that is lighting up the Internet today. It shows a young boy in Bakersfield, California, being attacked by a neighbor's dog. And then an unexpected hero comes to the rescue, his pet cat, Tara. Watch that cat. We're going to meet the family in a moment. But first, That's a bit more on That's the cat I would story. have in my house right there. That's the cat I want. There is a time to fight. There's a time. How many of you have seen that video before? Most of you did. I mean, that's pretty amazing. And the story behind that, I read the story behind it. The cat's six years old. The kid is four years old. That cat has been, been at the kid, in the house longer than the kid has. And he went up against that dog fearlessly without exception. We'd take that cat in our house. Bev says no. I say yes. <laughs> there is a time to fight. There's a time to stand up for what's right. There's a time to protect. There's a time to defend. Sometimes it's okay to fight, to defend, and protect, even in the church. In the book of Galatians, Paul goes after Peter. In the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul goes after the church at Corinth. In the Gospels, Jesus goes after the hypocritical religious leaders. There is a time to fight. Now, the problem is most church fights, most of the time that it takes place, it's not for the right reasons, and it's certainly not at the right time. Not the right reason, not the right time. Jude is a postcard from the past that tells us there is a time to fight. Most churches, though, I mean, it's really ugly. You can YouTube church fights. Don't do it right now. 
But if you YouTube church fights, I watched fights for a half an hour. I mean, I I watched a pastor walk up to the church in some town in the Midwest where where the doors were locked and they changed the locks on it. And there's a group of people coming behind him and there are about 15 people on the sidewalk and some lady gets in his face. She takes a slug at the pastor. The pastor slugs her right back. (laughs) And then you see the cops descend on it. It's amazing. There are about 15 videos like that, four of them from Louisiana. I can't believe that. (laughs) I'm talking about all literally breaks loose in, the, in, in there. and It's a church fight. It reminds me of this church. Look at the name of that church. Battlefield Bible Church. How'd you like to? Let's go to the battlefield this Sunday for worship. It's actually next to the Gettysburg Battlefield, and that's the name of that independent church. But I would change the name to something else. Before you put your gloves on and head across the auditorium to duke it out with somebody, let's look at the circumstance and when it's right. Jude says it's time to fight for the faith. <clears throat> fight for the faith. So we're, we're going to look at the danger of apostates. And you say, Gary, the word apostate I don't recognize. Uh, sounds like a disease. What does that mean? Well, the word apostate means one who defies the truth, turns from the truth, abandons the truth, or rebels against the truth. So an apostate is a person who de- denies the truth, defies the truth, turns from the truth, abandons the truth, or rebels against the truth. These are not true believers. The scriptures define them as void of the Holy Spirit. They are pretenders. They are not possessors. They are religious. They're in the church, but they are not righteous. They are members of the church, but not members of the body of Christ. So you've got church-going people who are in the midst of the church, but they don't really know Jesus. And they're causing all kind of havoc within the church. They're false teachers, and the problem is the church is struggling because of them being in it. They are, excuse me, apostates. So what happens? What happens to these apostates, who they are? How do you go against them? If you look at Jude, the third verse, he says, uh, I wanted to write to you about our common salvation. But I didn't do it because I found out there's a greater problem. The greater problem, if you look at verse 4, is certain people have crept in unnoticed and they are leading others astray. And so Jude writes, and we're not sure who the churches are he's writing to, but he says, I had this one thing I wanted to write about, but now instead of that I found out about this problem, so I'm going to write about you to fight for the faith. Eugene Peterson has written a paraphrase of the Bible called The Message. How many of you have read The Message at some point in time? About four or five years ago, as I read through the Bible each year, I switched to The Message for the year, and uh, it was quite interesting. I, I Honestly, I didn't like it that much because it's hard to divide it up, and it's paraphrased versus uh, what, what you hold in your hand. But here's how Peterson translates verses 3 and 4. He says, Dear friends, I've dropped everything to write to you about this life of salvation we have in common. I have to write insisting, begging that you fight with everything you have in you for this faith entrusted to you as a gift to guard and cherish. What has happened is that some people have infiltrated our ranks. Our scriptures warned us this would happen, who beneath their pious skin are shameless scoundrels. Their design is to replace the sheer grace of our God with sheer license, which means doing away with Jesus Christ, our one and only master. So as Peterson translates this, he says, there is a time to fight, that you fight with everything you have, earnestly contend, uh, really two Greek words in the original language, combat two words that mean to agonize over, 
He's saying you need to agonize over this. You need to vigorously defend. You need to fight for this thing that's called the truth. Now, when you look at the section that's before us, if you look at verse 4, what you see are three descriptions or three dangers of apostates. Three dangers of apostates in verse 4. Certain people, first of all, have crept in unnoticed. The first danger of an apostate, one who denies the truth, one who rebels against the truth, one who teaches against the truth, is that they are very subtle. Now, look at the word crept right there. They crept in. You've watched National Geographic. You've watched the Discovery Channel. You've watched lions as they hide in the weeds, as they come through the bush and they stalk their prey. This is that word, to creep upon. That particular word means to, the root word means to come in stealthily, to sneak in, to be difficult to detect. It's like me headed to the freezer when there's a little bluebell on the inside. <laughs> That's the concept. They come in subtly. In other words, Jude says it's rare that apostasy begins as an overt and easily detectable manner. People don't come into the church and say, I'm a false teacher, would you give me a platform? People don't come in with, with some kind of label over their head and says, apostate, I'm here to deceive others. John Hanna was one of our profs at Dallas Seminary, taught church history, and I remember one of his uh, quotes over and over, one of his sayings over and over was, era comes in riding the back of truth. You see, people teach truth, but there's a little error that sneaks in riding the back of that truth. And, and that's exactly what happens. In fact, it's sometimes it's hard to detect and tell the difference between truth and error. A.W. Tozer was the founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance denomination. He was a great theologian. He was a godly man, and he wrote this about truth and error. He said, so skilled is error at imitating truth that the two are constantly being mistaken for one another. It takes a sharp eye these days to know which brother is Cain and which brother is Abel. That was written in the 1950s. You, you see, it looks like truth, smells like truth, seems like truth, but there's a little bit error mixed in with us. Some of you saying, Gary, give me an example. I mean, what's crept into the church in recent years? Well, I mean, I, I've often talked about prosperity theology, health and wealth theology, name and claim it. I call it... Uh, uh, blab it and grab it. I, I mean, the reality, there are those out there who teach. Since I've become sick, I can't tell you the number of people who tell me, you just need to claim the verse that says, by his stripes we are healed. Well, guys, look at the context. The context that is not physical healing. Context is spiritual healing. Spiritual healing. What does it profit a man if he gained the world and lose his soul? There are more people concerned about saving their body than, than having their souls saved. It's amazing. And that verse is ripped out of context, sent by many to others thinking they're doing them well, when the reality of what you're teaching is, hey, if you don't have enough faith, then you're going to be sick. I'm going to tell you, as a sick person, we don't need that. Hey, there's also that same theology that says that you need to be wealthy. It's interesting to me, a lot of people hang out on the healthy issue, but they'll, they'll ditch the wealthy issue because they're not wealthy. And so they're going to say, you don't have enough faith because you're sick, but don't talk about my faith because I'm not wealthy. And that, that, that's a terrible theology. Both of those are terrible. It's American middle-class narcissism. You will be healed. It may be on the other side of heaven. But, but I find it quite ungodly for me to stand in the face of God and demand healing. Now, I have no problem praying for that. And I ask you to pray for that. But it's a false theology that's taught out there, and I think it's crept into the church. 
probably the greatest false theology we're dealing with with people have crept in the church to teach it right now in our culture our society in our day and age has to do with same-sex marriage I mean, I get stuff in the mail all the time. There's stuff out there. The generation behind me, the guys that will fill this pulpit and other pulpits will be pressed even more so than I am. But but throughout our culture, throughout our society, comes the, 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 the whole idea of tolerance, especially in the area of sexuality. And I, I would say one of the false theologies that's crept in, many churches now perform weddings, same-sex weddings, and I would say that's a false theology. It's false people have crept into the church in its wrong period wrong. How many of you heard the name Rob Bell before? Rob Bell. Rob Bell was a pastor of a mega church in uh, the Midwest, about 10,000 people a week in attending, best-selling author. Rob Bell has continued to drift away. We used to use a lot of his media stuff, but he's continued to drift away really into uh, a quagmire spiritually. He was recently interviewed uh, about this topic of same-sex marriage, and he's drifted away from what I would consider, consider to be the biblical norm. Here's his answer about same-sex marriage and homosexuality. I believe God is pulling us, uh, uh, pulling us ahead into greater and greater affirmation and acceptance of our gay brothers, sisters, pastors, friends, neighbors, co-workers. I am for fidelity. I am for love, whether it's a man and a woman, a woman and a woman, a man and a man. I think the ship has sailed, and I think that the church just needs to, uh, this is the world that we are living in, and we need to affirm people wherever they are. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying culture has changed, so the church should change. He's saying culture accepts it, so we should accept it. To me, it's very disconcerting that a man who is seen as a Christian leader to say that the church should simply get in line with whatever culture says. One of the things we cannot do as believers is ask the scripture to take a backseat to cultural whims. That's what Bell is asking us to do. Now, as soon as I say that, you're here today and we have folks who embrace homosexuality i'm sure that at 10 tbc you recognize that we do love you we care for you and we point you to a savior who can free you of that sin same time i look at my heterosexual friends who are involved in immorality who are sleeping with somebody they're not married to and say you're just as much sin as a person as a homosexual and i pray for you I pray for my young sisters that you will value yourself enough not to give yourself away to some man if he won't marry you. And I pray for my young brothers that you'll not take advantage of our Christian sisters. And that you would have the, that you would have the desire to be pure as men before Christ. But, but this has come in. This has come in. It is subtle. This teaching is subtle. It's come in. Second, second danger of apostasy, it's ungodly. These are ungodly people teaching ungodly things. If, if you look at verse 4, it says, These people have crept in unnoticed. They were long beforehand marked out for condemnation. Ungodly people. Ungodly people. In fact, Jude uses the word ungodly six times. He uses it there. He uses it four times in verse 15. He uses it one time in verse 18. He's talking about the behavior of these teachers. He's saying, if you look at what they're saying, their life does not match up to it. Paul seeks to strip away their authority, strip away their listening audience, or Jude does, strip away everything about them by showing how corrupt their lives are. Why would you follow the teaching of those who live a life antithetical to that which they are teaching? The tragedy is, in our day and age, we still follow corrupt leaders. We still follow corrupt leaders. 
This is a great example that's taking place in Fort Lauderdale, Florida right now. The largest Calvary Chapel is pastored by a gentleman who is a charismatic leader, strong leader, uh, a man who uh, many people followed over 20,000 people per weekend. It came out just in the last two months that uh, he'd been involved in a sordid affair with a woman for the last several years. The tragedy is, the tragedy is there's still people in church who are saying, well, he's such a good teacher, he's such a strong man, he led me to Christ, he's the one who discipled me, he needs to be the guy who's still in the pulpit. And there are others here saying, no, he needs to pay for the, or needs to at least be set on the sidelines for a season as a consequence to the sin he's been involved in, which I would agree with. Let, let's strike a deal here. If the leaders of TBC are involved in sinful activity and unrepentant of it and are callous towards it, let's quit coming. Let's, let, let's close the doors. I, I saw with interest, I didn't realize, ladies, the study of Malachi is available to you in the month of June. Malachi is one of my favorite books in the Old Testament. In Malachi chapter 1, God says, I wish somebody would close the doors of the temple. I wish somebody would be bold enough and courageous enough and quit bringing these terrible sacrifices in here. So here's our deal. If the leaders of TBC are corrupt, not sinless, nobody here is sinless. If you think I'm sinless, talk to Beth for about five seconds. She'll straighten that out. (laughs) But if the elders, deacons, staff at TBC are unrepentant, not remorseful, not broken because of our sinfulness. Let's quit coming. Let's close the doors and not be here. Let's go find another place to worship together. Because corrupt leaders don't need to be followed. Men who lack character don't need to be in positions of leadership. And he's saying, how can you follow these ungodly people? It's interesting, he doesn't go into a whole lot of what their false theology is, but he reveals their character, so he strips them away from all authority. If the character of the leader is corrupt, don't follow him. It's called hypocrisy. We are what we do, not just what we say. Then Jude says they ultimately deny their master. They deny Christ. If you look at the end of verse 4, they turn the grace of our God into licentiousness, and they deny our master and Lord Jesus Christ. They deny the Savior. Maybe they do it overtly. And you say, Gary, people don't do that today, do they? I mean, in the church, do people really deny Jesus? I mean, does that really happen today? I was reading uh, some stuff this week, and I ran across a blog of an Episcopalian bishop in Washington, D.C. Her name is Marianne Budd. She wrote a blog just before Easter entitled The Resurrection. So she's a current sitting Episcopalian bishop in Washington, D.C. This is the week before Easter from her blog. To say that the resurrection is essential doesn't mean that if someone were to discover a tomb with Jesus' remains in it, that the entire enterprise of Christianity would come crashing down. The truth is we don't know what happened to Jesus after his death any more than we can know what will happen to us after our death. What we do know from the stories handed down is how Jesus' followers experienced his resurrection. What we know is how we experience the resurrection ourselves. And there are people that listen to that and go, oh, wow, that's really deep. That's about as deep as two inches is what that is. 
There's nothing deep about that. That's heretical thought. When she writes and says that the resurrection is, is, is the state resurrection is essential, doesn't mean anything. If the remains of Jesus found in First Corinthians chapter 15, it says, "If Christ is not resurrected, our faith is what? It's in vain. It's empty. It's wasted. We are. We shouldn't be here." That's a sitting Episcopalian bishop in Washington D.C. right now. So don't tell me that there are not ungodly people who deny who Jesus is as our Master. Don't follow him. Don't be part of it. In fact, he says you fight and you contend for the faith. So what happens to these apostates? Jude says, the the whole book of Jude is a warning. And he says, I want you to know if you're an apostate, this is what awaits you. He gives three examples from past judgments. He gives examples of the Israelites being judged, angels being judged, and Gentiles being judged. In verse 5, he talks about Israelites being judged. Now, I, I desire to remind you, though uh, you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who didn't believe. So the Israelites are judged. They, they exit from Egypt, and uh, a bunch of them don't believe that God will bring them into the promised land. So what happens? God judges them, and other than Joshua and Caleb, no one under a certain age enters the promised land. And then verse 6, he talks about apostate angels. They will be kept in what? Eternal bonds. And then verse 7, apostate Gentiles. He refers to Sodom and Gomorrah. Then he talks about because of their gross immorality and strange flesh, they are experiencing eternal fire. So he says if you're an apostate, one who denies truth, rebels against truth, teaches that which is untrue, then you will go the same way that these other apostates did, that is the Israelites, the angels, and the Gentiles. Note two things, note, note one thing in here that he talks about eternal bonds and eternal fire. Talking about hell. Talking about hell. There's been a battle in the last 20 years in the evangelical church. There are some scholars that talk about annihilation, that uh, once we die, we're annihilated, they deny hell. Here's the reality of it hell is mentioned 167 times in the scriptures. It's real. It's real. You don't want to go there. You don't want to go there. A couple of weeks ago, I was having lunch, and uh, I don't hear that well, but I was waiting for my appointment to come, the guy I was going to meet with, and uh, all I I heard another guy say is, at least we'll be in hell together. I have no idea what the topic of the conversation was, how it happened. It took everything in me not to go over there and sit with them and explain to them, you really don't want to be there. At least we'll be in hell. You've heard other people say, hey, we can party together in hell. I'll be with my homies in hell. Or maybe you read Ted Turner's quote. He says, heaven is perfect. Who wants to go to a place that's perfect? That's boring. At least in hell, we'll have a chance to make things better because hell is such a mess. Wow. You don't want to go to hell. Yeah, you don't want to go there. One author writes, citizens of hell long to die, but they cannot. They beg for water, but receive none. They pass into a dawnless eternity. Erwin Lutzer writes about hell in a book called That Hideous Doctrine. He says the new occupant is slow to learn. In growing panic, he kicks his feet, he waves his arms, he stretches his hands, he lunges, but he feels nothing. You see, hell's a bottomless pit. You're going to hang out okay. You're going to hang out and not touch anything for eternity. Lutzer goes on and he says after more fervorous tries... He's exhausted, suspended in black animation. 
Suddenly, with a scream, he kicks, twists, lunges until he's exhausted and cannot move anymore. He hangs there, alone in his pain, unable to touch a solid object. And then he begins to weep and sob uncontrollably. Echoing in his mind are the last words he heard. Depart from me, you work of iniquity. I know you not. For all of eternity. Who wants to go there? Who wants to be there? If I told you this afternoon, I want you to come take a ride with me. We're going to go down I-35. I'm going to close my good eye. We're going to go 100 miles an hour and see what happens. Who's in? You would think that's the dumbest thing I've heard in my life. What's worse is a person is punished for all of eternity when they go past the cross of Christ. And they end up in a Christless eternity. Somebody came after one service and said, you sound like a hellfire and brimstone preacher. I said, I am. I'm trying to scare the hell out of everybody today. Literally. Literally. Why would you not fall on your face and make sure Jesus is your Savior today? Jude says there are those who are going to come in and rob you of all this. So maybe it's overtly denying Christ. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's subtly denying Christ. Maybe it's a gospel of works that says Christ is not enough. Maybe you're saying it's Christ plus. You add what you want to it. There are those that say it's Christ plus baptism equals salvation. Others, it's Christ plus speaking in tongues equals salvation. Others, it's Christ plus good works that equals salvation. Christ is sufficient alone, period. Amen. He's done it all. He's paid the price. So you trust in him forever. So you look at these apostates and you recognize that they are doomed, that judgment comes upon them. The description of these apostates is quite interesting. Look at verse 8. There are three descriptions of these apostates, three characteristics of apostates. Number one, they're immoral. Number two, they're insubordinate. Number three, they're irreverent. Where do you get that, Gary? Verse 8, in the same manner, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh. That is, they're immoral. They reject authority. That is, they're insubordinate. They revile angelic majesties. That is, they're irreverent. These are nasty people. These are people who please the flesh and somehow call it spirituality. These are insubordinate people. They have no respect for authority. They go church to church. They go friend to friend. They go house to house. They go place to place because as soon as somebody confronts them, as soon as somebody rebukes them, as soon as somebody challenges them, it's their way or the highway. And so they change jobs. They change friends. They change spouses. They change everything because they're insubordinate to all authority at any time. And they blame everybody else. They grow up to be old, miserable, lonely people. And he says they're insubordinate, they're irreverent. He says there are three correlations to the past. If you look, jump ahead to the next verse, jump all the way down to verse 11. He says they have, they have gone the way of Cain. Cain killed his brother Abel in the midst of uh, rage. They have pay, they've rushed headlong into the era of Balaam. Balaam is one who was a prophet for hire, and they perished in the rebellion of Korah. Korah rebelled against Moses. 250 people died. 
He's saying these apostates are as bad as anybody you have seen in the Old Testament. And then if you look at verses 12 and 13, he says they are hidden reefs. That is, they lurk beneath the water seeking to destroy you. They are waterless clouds. That is, they have promised, but they don't deliver. They are fruitless autumn trees. That is, they should bear fruit, but they don't. They are barren. And then it goes on and he says uh, they, are, they are also uh, wild sea waves and they are wandering stars. So here, what's this about? What, what is Jude doing? I think Jude is Jude is standing in the highway saying, stop, stop, don't go there. Beware, be warned. Danger lurks ahead. That God is hollering at us through Jude. He's saying, he's saying, don't go there. Don't allow this to happen. Don't go the way of the apostate, the one who denies truth, the one who defies truth, the one who stands against truth, the one who stands against God. Don't go that way. So what do we do when we hear warnings from God? We often do what this guy did. Danger. Rockfall. Serious risk of injury or death. Stay away from the cliffs. You remain at risk even in low tide. So he pitches his tent right there. That's what we do with the warnings from God. That's what we do with the warnings from God. What do we do when we are warned, when we are told? Look at this. No smoking, no photography. Look at that picture. What do we do when God tells us what to do? We often do this. I don't want to hear it. God says, don't be unequally yoked. So what do we do? We find some non-believer. We get hitched up to him. And then we blame God because we're in a miserable marriage. God says, don't be immoral. Don't be immoral. So you get involved in immorality and you can't understand why your heart is sucked away from you, taken away from you. You can't understand why things are not right between you and someone else. It's because you're defying the very warnings of God. God says, forgive as you've been forgiven. Yet some of you chomp down down on unforgiveness and you've got a root of bitterness in your life and you are just a person nobody wants to be with because you walk around bitter and sullen and angry all the time. It's because you're not heeding the warning of God. And you blame God and you blame the church and you blame others. And the reality of it is you're just a sinner in a quagmire of sin suffering the consequences of your own sinfulness. How's that for a happy message on Sunday morning? That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. Heed the warning. Heed the warning. Listen to the warning. Because if you don't, you're going to struggle. Our daughter Sarah, she was our strong willed of our two kids. We would tell Sarah, Sarah, if you do this, this is going to happen. What would Sarah do? She had to do it. Didn't matter what. Sarah, if you touch that iron, that iron is hot. You touch it with your finger, it's going to burn you. What did she do? She touched the iron. She touched it. One time, I remember, with my folks in, uh, in South Louisiana and New Orleans, and we're having crabs, and, you know, she wants to reach in and pick up her. If you pick up that crab, that crab has claws. The claws are going to pinch you, and it's going to hurt. Next thing I see is her screaming with a crab hanging from her hand. So God, in his justice, gave her grace in her five-year-old son. <laughs> Just like her. Just like her. They all come from Bev's side of the no, I, <laughs> my side of the family. Hey, aren't we like that? God says, don't, and we're going to say, I'm going to try it anyway. And then we experience the consequences of sin. 
And we get mad and we blame and we become angry and we struggle. The defense against apostates, threefold. Verse 17, remember the words you were spoken to beforehand by the apostles. The first thing you do is remember. If you write in your Bibles, underline verse 17, remember. In verse 20, remain. Remember, verse 17, the teaching of the apostles. Verse 20, remain. But you, beloved, building up yourselves with most holy faith, pray in the Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, wait anxiously for the mercy of Jesus Christ. You remember the truth that you've been taught. You remain on the pathway of spiritual growth. And finally, you reach out to those who need mercy. Look at verse 22. Have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others. Snatch them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. You have mercy on those who are separated from God, being separated from God, who don't know God. Wow. Here's Jude. He says, uh, you need to fight. But make sure you're fighting for the essentials of the faith, not your preferences or secondary issues that should be fought over. St. Augustine said this. He says, in essentials, unity, non-essentials, liberty, and all things love. What are you fighting for? When do you fight? How do you fight? Yeah, I wrote down in my notes there are times to fight. For instance, we need to fight false teachers. That's what this is about. Those that teach false gospels. Those that teach false theology. Then I wrote some other things down. We need to fight for our families. We need to fight for our families. Some of you are about to desert your family. We need to fight for your family. Time for some men in here to man up. Quit running from your family. You start fighting for your family. Quit spending endless hours at work. You go fight for your family. Start going to your kids' games and recitals. You fight for your family. Quit cowering from your wife. You fight for your family. And I don't mean physically. Don't take me wrong here. And ladies, you fight for your husband. You fight for your husband. You need to do everything you can to make your home an attractive place for that man. Fight for your family. We need to fight social issues today. We fight social issues. We need to fight against abortion. Some of you should be involved in serving whole pregnancy centers. Some of you are, maybe more. We need to fight sex traffic. And Bev and I send part of our giving to International Justice Ministries, IJM. They fight sex slavery, and they, 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 they do a tremendous job in that area. Next week, you can bring groceries for the drop. You can help fight hunger in our community. You can go serve at Churches Touching Lives of Christ or at Salvation Army or Feed My Sheep in Belton. We need to fight for at-risk kids. A bunch of you have been involved in mentoring programs in Temple Belt and other places. Keep doing it. We need to fight for kids without means. We, we do something called Backpack Buddies in the midst of the summer and provide for kids that wouldn't have food or school supplies or backpacks. Most importantly, we need to fight for the gospel. We need to fight for the gospel. Because Jesus is being denied many places and we need to stand up for our Savior and we need to unabashedly, unashamedly fight for him. The problem is most churches fight over stupid stuff. It's a tragedy. It's a blemish upon the bride of Christ. If you're going to fight, you make sure it's essential truth of the faith you're fighting for.
that weekend that we went to uh, take care of the kids about a month ago, um, Bev and Emerson, that's the our granddaughter, she's about three, they went to do what girls do, they went shopping. I was left behind with boys, and my job was to fix lunch. So I'm in the kitchen fixing lunch, and the boys are out doing whatever they're doing. They're, they're outside, actually in the backyard playing, and then all of a sudden I heard screaming. So I look out the back window, and man, it's dukes and kicking and screaming and fighting. It's seven-year-old, seven-year-old, five-year-old. It's all three gone after one another. I mean, they were just getting it on in the backyard. At first, I thought, I'll let them fight it out. We'll see who wins. Crown them champion. (laughs) But I opened that back door like a good grandfather would, and I said, Papa Doe is going to wear you boys out if you don't stop doing what you're doing. You remember that verse in Proverbs? You look up in the sky, there's an eagle. Come and pluck your eyeball out and eat it because you're not listening It was a verse. I said, I did it, Mother. It was there. It's in the Bible. And so I brought him inside. I put him in time out. Because grandparents, you know, you don't spank your grandkids unless you really have to. And so put him in time out, whatever that means. So I get Hudson in one corner, Jackson in another corner, Grayson in another corner. I go over to Jackson first and say, Jackson, why were you boys fighting? I don't know, Papado. <laughs> I mean, he's out there kicking. In the... Hudson, why are you boys fighting? I can't remember Papa, though. Grayson, he's the one like my daughter. Why are you fighting? I don't know, but they started it. <laughs> Why are you boys fighting? I don't know. Hey, church, why are you fighting? I don't know. Didn't get my way. Didn't get what I wanted. Things aren't what I expected. Or you're fighting for the truth of the gospel in that alone. Father, we thank you. We thank you for many who contend for the faith. Apologists who stand up for that which is true and right. Those in churches that have been led towards a much more liberal theology than we experience here. And folks have stood up for what's right. I pray for the leadership of TBC that we would stand up for what's right if we ever hear what's false being taught. Help us to be men and women of character, every single person in this room. And if you're here and there's any chance that you're headed to a Christless eternity, it's like driving with with my eyes closed down I-35 at 100 miles an hour. Why would you go there? Why would you not right now come before Jesus Ask him for the forgiveness of your sin so that you can experience eternal life and abundant life with him. Jude concludes with a benediction, and I'll conclude with his benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen and amen.